Hey, welcome back to another episode of The Russians. Hello, hi. Today we're going to talk about a movie, right? I don't know how, how else to introduce it. Oh. <laughs> you know, actually calling it a movie is already um, too flattering uh, for this thing. A movie. Um, it's a documentary. <laughs> yeah, it's that. And it also feels actually like a TV documentary, but because of its um, subject, it's elevated to to what? I don't know, to be a real film in a, in a movie theater. Yeah. Uh, it's a film called We, we Are As Gods. Congratulations. It's oh. you. Okay. <laughs> you didn't t- turn on okay. your phone, and that's your friend in other podcasts and markings. <laughs> You can you can sense the level of professionalism that's unprecedented, right? Well, yeah, you know, professionalism is overrated, as Stuart Brand would say. Anyway, let's uh, let's begin with the uh, We Are as Gods, right? It's a documentary about um, Stuart Brand, um, or I would actually call it like a hagiography. Yeah. While it was literally premiered just um, a few days ago here in San Francisco, mm-hmm. he was at the premiere at the Roxy Film Theater and uh, somehow now I find it kind of mysterious I don't know why I knew about it I was like, either checking Roxy Film Theater website it's bizarre because I'm not really monitoring anything film wise yeah, any- yeah. anymore Roxy's like one of the small indie um, film theaters film in theaters Mission in the Mission yeah it's one of the few in San Francisco that are left but I don't even really monitor it I think I basically it's very mysterious how I found out but I found out like in advance and I could get tickets and uh, well we went there and we were it was pretty nauseating throughout Whatever, however however, we found out about it I'm glad you found yeah. out about it because well you know Stuart Brand is like a, I kind of spent a lot of time reading about him and, and, and researching him and in fact I even tried to get in, t- in touch with him and try to interview him for my book Surveillance Valley and he's one of the I don't know one of the main characters I'd say of, of my book uh, because he plays this sort of pivotal uh, moment uh, in the development of, um, in the transition from like early of, internet. Yeah, basically, like sort of from the counterculture hippie days in, in San Francisco, and like the Grateful Dead and the Merry Pranksters, and the sort of the commune scene in in California, but uh, but also kind of in in the West uh, that was developing. That that was an offshoot of the counterculture movement, and he was this sort of strange, um, almost like a connecting tissue between that world and the uh, no, the overlapping world of the military industrial complex and um, ARPA, you know, which is the agency, ARPA, the Advanced Research Projects Agency, the Vietnam War era um, sort of uh, advanced weapons design um, center uh, that was set up um, uh, and, and then ended up, you know, sort of uh, creating the internet. And 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 he he was the guy that connected those two worlds. Those two worlds were had, were already overlapping to some degree. But he's the guy that kind of, I mean, you know, his his name is Stuart Brand, and, and that's kind of what he does. He brands things, and he's able to put like certain a certain political certain like spin on it and a marketing spin on things and bring people together. Uh, could you talk more about him? Because again, even after watching the film, it's like completely. You, you can see it's a pan, panegyric, you say, yeah. but it, it, I'm, you still don't really know much about like what exactly he did because it looked like um, he was in all these different communities, uh, knew all the most important uh, people of the times, whatever, yeah. Ken Kesey, and then um, Young, um, what's his name, um, who, the guy who created Apple. Oh, yeah, well, I mean, I, I don't know if they were personally knew each other, but They're I pictures. know that. Yeah, um, I think so. what's his name? Um, 
Steve Jobs. Uh, what I want to say is like actually even watching um, after watching that film that's supposed to be like a, a really some kind of like descriptive film about his life. I couldn't fully understand what is exactly his specialty. Yeah. I mean it's banal, but yeah, like jack of all trades, but like but he is like I guess at least master of PR, which clearly because he was um, very closely supervising the nature of that film wasn't ever was not ever hinted at because the at least the PR aspect I would understand, but it was it was nothing like that. The way he yeah. was presented, he was a conservationist, a photographer, photojournalist, a scientist, biologist. It, yeah. Like so, it was super confusing. So, can you actually talk? What was his like role as you see it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he was a, he's a weird guy. So, I mean, he comes from a you know fairly. Uh, I think his dad was some kind of um, advertising executive or worked in advertising. I think he his dad graduated from MIT. Um, he's from Illinois, um, a pretty well-to-do family. He's just, you know, a, a pretty bright kid. And, and he, um, because um, um, I think, like, you know, his family, you know, most of the people from his family went to MIT. I mean, he didn't go to MIT. He went to Stanford, which is sort right. of the West Coast M- version of, of MIT. And so he, for there, he, um, I think, studied biology or something like that. And And... But after college, essentially, because he was there in you know the the beginning of the counterculture movement, he kind of fell in with the early hippies, uh, and I mean specifically, you know, he fell in with the Merry Pranksters and with Ken Kesey and that whole set that was sort of a, this kind of bridge, I guess, between the beatniks and and sort of the hippie the hippies, right. and fell into that world and became kind of uh, you know one of the one of the one of the crew and he was very good at organizing things. He was very good at branding things. I mean, he and so he became this. Um, an, an important, you know, uh, like society guy in the in this in the counterculture movement in in San Francisco, and found himself in like this at the center of these, you know, now in hindsight at these pivotal moments in in in, in American culture, right? Where like he helped one of his big um, the things that he did early on was he set up this sort of kind of psychedelic festival that took place in San Francisco that. Basically, was the was the where like the Grateful Dead, you know, like emerged Played as for the first yeah, time, right? Great, emerges as like as 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 and became a huge hit and like we were launched from there. And so he set Is up. Is it what it's called acid test? Um, it was one of the acid tests. I, I can't remember exactly. What, there was a, there was a, there was a, they would do these acid tests. I mean, the the Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters were these really weird. It's just a weird, very jocky, very jock like kind of supposedly counterculture guys but all they do is like they'd go party on a big bus you know on a school bus that they'd they they you know like decorated with uh you know psychedelic colors and whatever and like they dress funny and they just go on these like almost like a frat boy sort of escapades you know to sh- kind of shock people and you know gave out acid and all this stuff and so he was part of that scene right and and then so and they set up this 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 big kind of i don't know like a Art installation, psychedelic art installation, just like a kind of a basically, I don't know, it probably in 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 the modern world, we probably call it like a rave, because oh. you know, just without the tech. I mean, there were people with like weird, you know, kind okay, of like then early. Okay, he's like a early raver. Well, he's like a. Well, I mean, it was it was a music festival and like a and like, you know, a lot of drugs were given out. Everyone was high. And it just, uh, and so he he was the basically he was like the promoter and the organizer of that of that party. And so okay. I think. From that, you know, his star grew, you know, grew, and he was, I think he was even one of the, like, a, a major character in, like, Tom Wolfe's um, novel about that whole scene, you know, the electric Kool-Aid acid test. 
Um, so he's like, early on, he became like, uh, I mean, I guess because he attached himself to Ken Kesey. And I, and, and, and I, I didn't understand how that happened, but I think this, this documentary at least like demystified at least that part of his history. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize well, how did he get in with those people. And apparently because he was, um, after college for what he, he went, he hung out in like, I guess he hung out in North Beach in the beatnik scene. And like, cause he was very young at the time. And then he was, he went to, he served in the military for a couple of years. Right. And there he was trained as like a photojournalist in the military. <laughs> so he, and so he came back and he came back and like one of the first jobs that he had was um, from like through a family friend he was given a commission to go and photograph uh, life on a Native American reservation, I think somewhere in like the Southwest. Mm-hmm. And because he, that, and he, that kind of made him like a, some kind of expert on, you know, Native American life and all this stuff. And I think Ken Kesey was interested in it or he was, he was writing a book or he was, had already written a book, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo Nest, which had like one of the main protagonists was this Native American who was institutionalized, right? And who like ended up like breaking out of the, of the, of the asylum. And I think he became friends with Ken Kesey because he was like, oh, oh, this guy, you know, lived on a on a reservation, and he kind of has information about life with with people with people who were there from. And so Ken Kesey invited him over, uh, and, mm-hmm. and and also Stuart Brand married, uh, you know, a Native American woman. So they came over to Ken Kesey's house and partied with him and all this stuff, and they you know smoked pot together, and you know, and so that's how he that was his entry into into that world. Um, and he and and then from then on he became just this sort of Almost like a entrepreneurial promoter um, slash uh, social socializing kind of I don't know like a businessman. Uh, but I don't know. That's maybe later. It well, really no, seems he, like he was just well, living in the RV kind of. Yeah, like but he. But like around. I think the, so. From 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 like sort of setting up some of these events in San Francisco. His next big thing, which he's what he's really known for in the wider world, and how he was introduced to. People like you know Steve Jobs, or how Steve Jobs was learned about him was right. creating this, basically kind of going out and, and hanging out with the commune in the commune movement, that in, in sort of in, in California and in, and in the Southwest, uh, um, and realizing like that these people were, you know, that there was like a demand there, which is that all these all these people who are you know, not technically uh, very, very savvy. savvy. Like, right. I have no idea how to build anything. They're not carpenters. They're like, you know, like even in the film, uh, they talk about how all these people are basically liberal arts majors, right? Uh, and they have no idea how to, you know, how to create anything. But they're, but they, but they're moving out into these communes and trying to build a new, a new, new societies from scratch. And so he saw an opportunity there. And so he created this magazine called the Whole Earth uh, Catalog. Which is a kind of like he was himself says he was inspired by LL Bean, and LL Bean is like this very quintessential. Um, uh, before the internet, you know, before you could do internet shopping, you had every every kind of store or brand would have their own magazine that would be mailed to you, and you right. could order stuff from the catalog, right? So LL Bean was this very quintessential American brand um, that I think he probably grew up with and mm-hmm. bought stuff from there, and so he said like, well, this this movement, the, these people, they're all sort of. United in the kind of a, a underlying common vision, they want to you know drop out and kind of create their own world, re- recreate their own world on their own terms. But they have like, but they don't have the the know how, and they're but they're all using. They all basically have the same needs, but they don't have like. The, so he created this magazine to to cater to them, 
You know, as yeah, a kind of a little magazine. Bean. Like I think you even own one issue. I have. A, well, I have, I have a couple of issues, and I have. I downloaded them a bunch. You can still download them in the PDF form. Yeah, but yeah. it's cool to see a, a real one. It's yeah. very like eclectic and patchy, and it's all just things for sale, right? Well, it's Mostly. yes and no. I mean, it's like there's articles on like how to how to build things. There's like sort of philosophical discussions. There's like book reviews of like Ayn, for instance, like of Ayn Rand, and 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 not just Ayn Rand, but like different. There's also discussions about various. Sort of, I don't know, like environmental issues. So it's like an eclectic thing. So it's not just a sales magazine, but it is. It's like a, a mixture of a mixture of a magazine for hippies and in the, the commune movement, right? Uh, that sort of touches upon and discusses um, sort of like the cultural and philosophical and practical things that you need to do, like how to build a, I don't know, how to build a geodesic dome or how to like garden in 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 a simple manner or how right. to build like. You know, whatever, like a, how to, how, what kind of, I don't know, how to build heating units and whatever. Just, but alongside that, there's like sort of reviews of different. So it's also a cultural magazine, right? A cultural magazine and a sales magazine, and you know, I don't know if he was making money off the sales, but it was like, but it was just almost like a, it would review the things that you need to live in a in a commune, you know, and and and, but also like brought the movement together. So he, this is the, the thing I think that why he is, you know known you know today and he's not just some, yeah. he's not just that he was also like he's like a, his his um and he would repeat this later on when the the internet sort of the early internet entrepreneurs emerged and he would sort of bring them together too uh in the, using the same kind of concept that he developed uh, you know for the commune movement which is that he's able to see like some uh, he's a, a cultural sort of movement or a cultural uh, new uh, trend or a new like um, before before it sees itself yeah like like a subculture essentially before it fully is aware of itself he's able to catch it at that moment and almost like unify it and give it a give it like cohesion and like, so and give it a brand give it a brand he's Stuart brand he's Stuart brand and, and so that's what he did with this my reading of it is that's what he's did with um, the you know the whole Earth catalog is that he. The magazine basically was like, you know, I don't know. There's different people describe it in a different way. It's like almost like the pre pre internet, the internet before the internet existed, where it like was able to give these communities a form where people, you know, would send in letters. They'd be published. They'd be like some kind of like even conversation on the pages between from people from that movement, you know. So it wasn't just like trying to just sell them stuff, but also a platform for them to communicate, mm -hmm. you know. And all, but but mostly it wasn't for them. Because most ultimately, you know, they they started out small, and for a couple of years, like they were, you know, they didn't. It's not, it wasn't like a successful, commercial or, or cultural success, but very quickly. I mean, in, in like I don't know, maybe two or three years, what they did really was it wasn't for the people in the communes because the commune movement was was already like sort of disintegrating and collapsing, but it was like for the people who were sitting in the suburbs to get vicariously live in a kind of see what those people are doing, right? So mm -hmm. the, I think that because it was a, like at some point it's it was like a national a bestseller. It's like a glamorous lifestyle. Yeah, because it was at the time it was like the the hippie and the counterculture movement was obviously like on the front pages of newspapers all the time. It was a cultural sensation, you know, but most people didn't really live it, right? So most right. people weren't moving here uh, and mo weren't mo moving to California. They weren't living in... Uh, they weren't living in communes. I mean, it's a very small number of people. Yet it was like culturally in America, it was a huge sensation, right? So yeah. newspapers covered it, magazines covered it. It was like a new stories, new stories on television about these people, about the crazy hippie kids taking all these drugs, right? And so that created demand for that kind of content. And so the magazine that he created ultimately 
was like catered to people who wanted to know what that what that world was like and so it became a national bestseller so what do you mean magazine national bestseller well it, i mean because because i'll tell you because it was because it was whole almost like as a book because it was they produced only one they didn't produce too many issues of them so they were very you know it took them a while it wasn't like a, a weekly or a monthly magazine uh, was it like just a few times a year yeah yeah i think maybe a couple times a year i i can't remember now but it was it, so it was like sold as a book more than as a i mean it was like not really clear what it was but it won it won like a national book a book award so um you know it was treated as like a kind of a book but I what's guess. his role again the film doesn't get into it he was like editor-in-chief who envisioned he, this he's, but like he, there were people working for yeah, it. i mean he was the guy who founded it and created it so he was he was he was the mastermind the behind it and yeah he had a whole editorial team working for him okay. there's something impressive about he's, it he's not he's an impressive guy i mean in in his in his own way yes and and he is uh yeah of course i mean i and he, i mean his ability is he's he's able to see a kind of a demand a cultural demand before it really even anyone else is aware of it uh, or or to kind of sense it you know maybe he, mm-hmm. you know it's not like rational uh but also is able to organize things very well right. and and able to and and to translate this sort of the counterculture uh into some kind of very digestible Right. Um, digestible slogans and digestible language and and so and the the title for this film that we saw or this sort of I don't know it's almost like um, yeah it's hard to call it a, a film it's like it was it's as if it was made by the Stuart Brand Foundation you know following his death to glorify the the this it's to glorify him you know um, but the 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 title uh, we are as gods we are as gods I think every issue of the magazine had. Um, That's that was kind of the slogan. No, uh, it said like whereas guys can as well get good at it. Yes, yeah. I mean, and the whole, and and what's interesting about the magazine is that it it had this kind of connects to what we were talking about in our last episode actually with Anthony Galuzzo, which is that it's this very it was a very techno utopian. So on the one hand, you have these these communes who had people who wanted to drop out and started to drop out of this 1950s. Um, corporate industrial kind of Cold War America, right? And and didn't want to live like their parents, who had you know the nuclear family and the suburban house with a dog and the two kids or two and a half kids or whatever. And, and two lawn, and a half. Well, on average, uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know the lawn and you know all the stuff, right? Um, landscaping, landscaping. You know the yes, the the vacations to you know I don't know whatever you know like uh, the two the, the one week vacation with the family you know on a road trip. Um, just very very boring uh cookie cutter life right and they wanted to re- so they so they were rejecting that on the one hand but on the other hand that whole that whole scene was very optimistic about technology and they wanted but they wanted to use technology to create their own worlds that were not that, that weren't hierarchical which is fine they were just looking at technology as a tool like exactly. which is a normal approach at least back then maybe no no i mean i mean look it's technology you the use of technology is i think part of human nature you know right. we are like tool making animals you know that's what we do that's why we are who we are and that's why we have supremacy over every over over every But other living you're pro- talking you know considering communes i don't fully get it like it's not like the communes were aspiring to be high tech or anything well no i mean but I, some of them were kind of in a high tech and they're in, in a kind of in a so i mean look back then the high tech was there was not even like you know high tech was a television or something like that there was not but they were thinking about like oh i mean a lot, some of those communes were specifically uh, organized around like cybernetic ideas about and created as if like kind of 
information systems. They looked at themselves as information systems, like de decentralized information systems. And, and that's why the geodesic dome was central to well, the kind of architecture well, there? Well, the geodesic dome was was like central to those guys because um, I think it was so easy to make and it was extremely durable. So mm -hmm. the geodesic dome itself was created for the US, for the Pentagon. It was like a design to create these very, very um, light, uh, easy to construct structures that could withstand like high winds and could be very durable. Mm -hmm. It was actually, I think it was created like under contract for the Pentagon. Uh, and so that kind of bled over into into the communes because they could pretty easily, you know, you could essentially cre create very, very durable structures with just a simple skeleton of, of you know, wooden beams or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, um, in a certain way. So, you know, I mean, but like brands thing, um, and if you even like the whole vibe about about uh, you know uh, of that magazine, and you know it gets comes through obviously in the film, and that's kind of what the film's central premise is. I mean, what his central premise is that we it's all about technology, and we are essentially we are totally in charge of our own destiny, and we should remake the world and kind of in the image that we have of the world. You know, that's. That's what it means to be a god, right? Is you have no limits. You create what you want, and and so um, and so and so it wasn't like he was he was, and it would come through his this idea of his his fatuation with technology, and his right. it would come through later on when he would make this sort of pivot to, um, you know, promoting the internet and promoting. Right. But you know, just a, a side note: is he like part of the pre-boomer generation? I forgot what are they called. Well, is he considered a boomer? I'm just trying to understand where he's, he's eight years positioned. old, right? Yeah. That's considered a, an old boomer. I mean, he's, he he came of age in the post-war prosper, prosper American prosperity. Yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. he's a he's a child of sort of the you know the car and the the highway and the. So yeah. it's a very boomer kind of overall. He has a boomer vibe. Yes, not yeah. in terms of just like entitlement and all, which is also there, but also just his optimism. An epitome optimism, optimism about technology, optimism about the American way of life, about about right. about sort of the American, you know, abundance, uh, uh, yeah, kind of, and, and basically limitless possibilities. Mm -hmm. And um, even if he was with hippie, it's so weird. He still has that very the vibe that I get even from completely not not counterculture. Yeah, but people. but I think that's the that's the weird thing about the hippies, right? Is that they there was maybe a moment where they rejected, on some level, American the Amer uh, American values, mm -hmm. but then very quickly when they became of age and you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, basically aged out of their rebellious years, they all went to work for corporate America and they and they recreated, you know, in in uh, uh, the the world that their parents lived in, but just with like you know divorce. Uh, pot smoking and women working sometimes. and maybe yeah maybe like yeah, and maybe going to like jacuzzis in the redwoods with like you know in in the nude you know <laughs> with your with your friends right like I mean it's basically with a bit more social freedoms the the clothing looked much cooler like a sort of tie was out of the yeah. picture so no, they I'm just still drove what? the cars but the but the <laughs> know, cars were like no, what yeah, they did exactly like. yeah they they drove the cars they did everything else I mean it's like they uh, they yeah. uh, they were ex extremely consumerist I mean so the the the, the counterculture it's really hard to I mean, you know, there was a there was a rejection of. I know that you know, like there was a, there were also different strains of the counterculture, and you know, this is something I get into my book too. There's like the political, more of the political, that were um, like you know more embodied in like the students for a democratic society, that those kinds of groups where there were, the students were kind of much more about using politics to change the world, and like you know, um, uh, whereas there was the other kind of strain of sort of more like a hippie libertarian strain of Cal the California version of it. Um, 
um, where it was all about like not really engaging with the world, but but like rejecting it and recreating your own, recreating your own little world, you know, which is embodied in the, in the counterculture movement. But I do have to say the things they showed in the movie, thanks to actually Stuart Brand himself digitizing all his like photo and video archives. Anyway, the way he lived, it's like even knowing now that it went nowhere, like the hippie stuff, it kind of looks envious from my um, from my of course, end. yeah. I mean, I don't know. I know it's not a full rejection if you can't potentially live com- comfortably, whatever, like everyone else. But instead, you have a an RV you live in and like travel around, and you have you're on your own time. You're not worried about the future constantly, and about um, that you, you that you know you can sort of drop out and not really worry about, it and then come back into the world, and and and, and you can and sort of it'll take you back in, and, and no worries. Right, but it yeah. was it's funny. It's not even covered yet. The fact that you can come back from that. But, but, yeah, but he, I mean, like that's the problem with the boomers, and it's just not even talked about. I mean, it's it's not the uh, boomers, you know, on an individual level, but the, I mean, like it's that whole world is. I mean, they took first of all, like it was they took, they, the time was everything was fairly cheap, you know, uh, uh, yeah, and it was kind of open, so you didn't have to worry about like always. Uh, uh, it's like the, the the money question wasn't always at your throat, right, like yeah. even if you're not even. But even now, like potentially, okay, that's off topic, but we could like potentially with. Well, with your age, it's a bit harder. We could, like, drop their stupid rant and all that and live in an RV, like, driving around America. Let's say just... We could. Annual cost of that would be significantly cheaper than what it is now. Sure. So it's, like, doable. But people didn't do it because it was cheaper. People did it because it was, like, fun and they went... They, they right? It's, but it was, but I mean, there, was, there, I bet it was cheaper, though. Yeah, but, but you know, but, like, I don't know. It was cheaper, but also, like, you know, the apartment that we live in in San Francisco was probably, I don't know, like a hundredth of a hundredth of the of the, of the rent you know that they paid on, on on the same on the same places at the time you know it's like uh the place it's just so i i agree i mean look you uh you know in la wherever we live you know you know that there's a huge um like rv basically poor poor people like uh who live in rvs not because it's cool or fun but because they have no other choice, and like th- that's the way that they can afford it. So you you drive into you, San Francisco is filled with RVs now, and I, I mean, from when I grew up in San Francisco, I didn't see so many people living in RVs. No, that's real poverty. I was talking about like if you still have some income. I mean, people do it. It's like people are young; they go and they drive around for a couple of years, and they right. but then you know it's it's done. It's done, and and there are people who. Uh, who do it out of financial reasons, and that's not what they were doing. Which is not what they were doing, of course. Look, not. I mean, and, and you know, what's what's funny? What's funny about this culture is like, okay, look, we live in the hate. You know, if you walk, this a couple- is, oh yeah, I want to talk about. We're like in the center of that world. He was potentially king of, yes. in a way. And you have to make you have to make uh, you know six figures to to be able to even like afford an apartment here. Uh, right. And and yeah, and also the, the, a lot of people out here own RVs. These small are like really expensive. They're like one hundred fifty thousand, two hundred fifty that, two hundred thousand dollars minimum. Mercedes like vans, right? Yeah, that's the people who own houses but and that, RVs. Right? Yeah, and, and they have their RVs parked out front. It was really amazing, like decked. Up. It's just it's like they're like they're like luxury vehicles. The um, kitchen sink, uh, what yeah. do you call it, faucet? Yeah, is better than our faucet. It's better than the faucet we in have. The RV. Yeah, it, it's like it's like some very it's like decked out in these luxury interior. Um, you know, so people are living that life. You know, <laughs> out here. 
But look, I mean, look, the the world, you can always drop out. But look, the, here's the problem. There, there isn't even a movement like that now. So, I mean, when he was dropping out and when, he, when they were, when there was actually, it wasn't just a single a person on their own thinking like, oh, I just want to live in an RV for, for a, a couple of years. And we're just going to, I'm young, I'm in my 20s, you know, like uh, me and my, my, my wife, we're, we don't have kids. We're just going to travel around and we're going to travel around all the different communes that exist, you know, the the dozens of communes that exist in, in around us. We're just gonna like spend traveling time traveling, you know, around them. I mean, that's what they were doing. They didn't uh, address it in the film, but I think that's what they were actually doing. And that's how you got the idea for the magazine mm-hmm. is that they were got the RV and they were just sort of visit all the different communes. It somehow wasn't like, wasn't even well narratively structured. I had no idea. And so, and so, and so then, and he, he, he went there and it's like, oh, these people are all doing the same thing. And Man, he's such a good salesman. He thought there is a demand. I mean, he's first and foremost a businessman. In fact, that's how he would talk to, about himself in the 80s when he would rebrand himself as the sort of like uh, promoter of technology. And uh, I mean, he is the guy who, who um, he didn't coin the term hacker, but he popularized it. He, in, in 1984, great, actually a very symbolic year, you know, then 1984, he, here in, in actually the Marin, Marin Headlands, if you remember, we were biking around right, there. Yeah. Uh, he uh, got like all these, um, you know, weirdo, <laughs> these weirdo like, uh, You know, programmers, you know, who early on, like including Steve Wozniak, who was the co-founder of Apple Computer, back when Apple Computer was still like, you know, uh, you know, it wasn't like he wasn't rich. It was they were still they were still trying to like make it. Um, he brought them together for a hacker conference, and it was covered by PBS. Came in with like a you know camera crew and already Stuart Brand. It was you know he's kind of already going bald. He's not a young guy anymore. Um, you know, like talking about these hacker guys as if they're the new hippies and if they're actually cooler than the hippies because they're actually trying to like, uh, they have like even, you know, what they're doing is, um, I don't know, even more more interesting. But he also did say is that he saw that they had a cooler drug. They were not on drugs. Yes. But I think it's actually a very astute observation even if he was not not aware of it himself yeah. because yes it is a fucking drug and that's what they created but he said they were yeah. all very like into that constantly being on like gadgets trying to whatever someone was like inventing games or what what not yes. and taking no drugs and yeah. he said whoa what are, are they on nothing exactly. technology they're exactly and, and now we're all hooked so, we're all hooked on the drug that they created yeah yeah so very astute actually yeah. very no, true I mean, look, and he's look he's he's a businessman and he's a businessman who 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 like sees a trend you know like before other people see it and then basically markets it and like brings it together and, and brings the people who are part of that trend together and then markets the thing so he yeah. has some kind of like a pretty superior intelligence I guess he's, I'm just what is he I don't know I mean you know maybe he's he's maybe he's not even re- a, a human being maybe he's one of the lizard people who send in he's <laughs> wait but let's uh, let's roll back so what's his like involvement with the early technology how that came about well you know it's like because i'll tell you because that's 80s that's again well no it's that's that's the thing is that so like there's a great book i kind of get a lot of my stuff from from this book it's called it's by this stanford um stanford professor named fred turner who wrote this great mm-hmm. book called from uh, from counterculture to cyberculture so uh, i mean and parts of i mean it's a great book some of it's is hard to read because it's so detailed because it gets yeah. really um into the into the into the minutia of like the connections. I mean, his whole thesis is that the counterculture, which was sort of supposed to be rejecting sort of Cold War America, was actually like a very, very fundamentally an expression of, of Cold War American politics. And that the two was like, the two were 
overlapped and they they are essentially one so the counterculture uh and the communes and all these things are like an expression of cold war american politics um and the ideology that we're swirling swirling around in it and and so and stuart brand and he focuses on stuart brand as like a, a, a key well, as like one of the key people in that, in that movement but not even just how important he was but because he embodies both sides of the supposedly contradictory these contradictory political forces where you know on the one hand you have the kind of cold war corporate america and the movement that supposedly rejects it and yet he's has his feet and one foot in each one and one of the ways you kind of realize that early on is that even in the early 1970s when he's came back from the military and he's hanging out with the merry pranksters he's doing sort of the he's hanging out in the communes he's also some of the people involved with the whole world and whole earth catalog and involved in the commune movement actually come from um, Stanford and particularly the parts of Stanford that were engaging in um, military research into networks and information information technologies and that were uh, being funded by ARPA the agency that you know would create would, would fund the creation of the internet and so some of the people who were involved in he, he was he was like he hung out with them he would go to their labs and, and in fact he um I'm trying to remember the year now. I think it was, it was 1972. It was earlier. It was like 1968, maybe 1967. So that to, early? Yes, I'm trying to remember. So there was there. So one of the so uh, ARPA fu- funded um, this uh, laboratory in Stanford, and one of the things uh, and one of the things that was funding was uh, technology that would later be uh, taken up by Apple computers, and that would become the personal sort of computer workstation. So the mouse. The computer screen, the mm-hmm. sort of the visual menus that you, so you can interact with a computer visually in a way that you sort of makes sense to you, sense to make sense to us as we interact with things in our environment, you know, with our hands and touching things and opening things, right? You recreate that on a computer, and so there was a dem- demonstration that was very, it was an important milestone in the development of um, the internet. Was there was this early. Um, um, kind of desktop computer technology where there's a mouse, there's a keyboard, there's a screen. The things that we would recognize as, you know, as computer technology, right? And it was connected via the ARPANET to, you know, to, 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 some, to, 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 to like an audience that was sitting far away. And, uh, and so this is a demonstration of like, of real-time video conferencing, real-time document editing like you would do with, I don't know, Google Docs or something where you can actually see someone editing a document and collaboratively editing things. So this is like, again, this is not commercial. This is just being developed like the most rudimentary version of that. And Stuart Brand, because he knew some of those people and because he was like a photographer and he had put up, a uh, set up um, organized events and he was, on, uh, uh, he was hired to like uh, document the thing and run some of the computer equipment that would, that that would, uh, that was part of the demo. And so he was, even in the 60s, he was already, uh, you know, hanging out at the communes and also hanging out at this Pentagon-funded uh, ARPA uh, research laboratory why in Stanford. Do, why do you think what kind of interest he had in that? It's just... I mean, I think he so was... Bizarre. I think he was... He think, I think he was... I mean, it was... I think by default, it was very cool. I mean, I think... And I think that um, 
generally computer technology was, you know, I mean, it's pretty interesting. Wait, but the people who were, I imagine, involved in that la- lab, like, let's say, late 60s, that early, right? Mm-hmm. They were not cool. They were not as cool as merry pranksters. I, I would, basically, to me, it's bizarre that he would try to st- straddle both of those worlds. You well, know, like, how... Well, That's before I mean, anyone knew why. I is think that those even worlds cool? are a lot more. Uh, I, I think the, the you know the coolness factor. I mean, he's look. Uh, Stuart Brand, as you can see, he himself is a pretty conservative guy. You know, very tradition, very traditional. You know, he doesn't seem like some kind of like uh, revolutionary character. You know, he's very. I mean, methodical. He's methodical. Right. He's you know he's dressed in very in very you know. So so when he was young, he would okay he would wear like some top hat and like put some kind of glitter on his face. You know, okay, big deal. A lot of those guys were like that. They were like macho, pretty conservative men who, you know, for a time experimented with new kinds of, uh, you know, ways of living and took drugs to open up their minds. And like, so the the guy who came up with the personal workstation, basically, and this sort of internet connected personal workstation and the mouse and things like that, his name was Douglas Engelbart. And like, he was, for instance, very interested in, he was, you know, like a computer engineer. Or an electrical engineer, uh, and he he was very interested in the commune movement. For instance, he I think even toured the co- some of the communes. Okay, so there was a connection. And he was interested on. in acid because because it was believed that acid is like a, a technology, right? So, but a technology that you could take to sort of open up your mind and to make it more efficient, to to open it up to creativity and. People dropped acid and oh, that it were was engineers. Like a tool. Yeah, it's a personal technology, and that's how and that's how. Um, you know, Stuart Brand even talks about it. You know, it's like it's you know, how a lot of the people in that in that scene saw acid as like a way. You know, you can you can talk about it. You can use different terms for it, but even that's how people see it now. It's like you take acid to um, open up your mind to your potential. You, you open up your potential. That's so insane. And I, yeah, right. And I've and heard... then the microdosing in Silicon Valley now. That's like that's all or about. Or they meet for like this real intense trips. Founders, founders, and specifically to solve some kind of like their, I don't know, like company <laughs> problems. That's isn't that crazy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, Stuart Brand seems almost like Zelik. Remember that movie by um, Woody Allen? He's not necessarily central to everything that's going on in history, but he would be um, important and influential in some way, like a facilitator figure. Or something exactly yeah i mean he has he has that feeling right he was like almost feel has like no particular personality almost right exactly yeah exactly he doesn't have a personality but he is there he somehow brings people together and somehow pushes things over the edge right yeah i'm like no i'm, I'm very interested in in that because it's sort of almost um it's like a superpower of its own which is it's like a precog. I think, it's a precog that maybe exists. Who knows? I don't know. He's not going to talk about it. He does it. come off. You know, it's true. You know, he he does come off as one of these not because as a, as, one, as a Philip K. Dick character, but not like one of the precogs sort of because you know he has like the boss who's usually not a precog but uses precogs to you know do his bidding right. Mm-hmm. Like in in the in Philip in Philip K. Dick's world, usually precogs are like there's usually some guy at the top that's like using their talents because they're usually kind of useless a little bit and like can't not really... useless but yeah they yeah definitely not like Stuart Brand they're like disorganized. And, so and they have some, as if like in Philip K. Dick world, those precogs frequently have like shitty lives because they have actually little grasp of their talent. Yes. Or they can't fully like use it to do anything. Exactly. And so they need someone useful. to exploit them a little bit and to direct right. them. But he, Stuart Brand is almost like a precog and a boss rolled into one. So he's he has the, some very, very minimal precog ability. Right. And, mm-hmm. and But also he's savvy enough and organized enough and almost like sociopathic enough to like 
not be like totally, you know, I don't know, like this, um, this, uh, I don't know, like disillusioned by it or no, something. No, but or disoriented because disoriented, if, you ha- exactly. if you basically you've been sent this weird signals, some precogs or whatever, according to Philip K. Dick or Philip K. Dick himself, can go fucking crazy. Yeah. It seems to be actually a pretty human reaction to just go crazy. Yes, yes. When you're being so told things about the future. And yeah. he never, he never did. He's or- he's able to organize it and do these, his little petty little like business, uh, business uh, ideas. I mean, you know, so yeah, like I'm trying to, I was trying to find in my book because I'm just, it's been so long since I've written about it. And one thing that I, when I re- recalled, I think, you know, there's a, there's a great, Adam Curtis has a great, um, you know, one of his, one of his documentaries, you know, series is um, watched over by Machines of Loving Grace or Machines of Loving Grace. No, um, watched over by Machines of Loving Grace. Watched over by Machines of Loving Grace. Yeah. He actually does a, you know, a big segment on the overlap between, um, he, he interviews Fred Turner. He was inspired by Fred Turner's work that I mentioned. And he does a big segment and actually interviews some people from the, from, from these communes, um, you know, about, uh, and, and there was a guy that he quotes, um, that he highlights in, in one of the, in, in one of the installments is this guy named Richard Brad- Bradigan, mm-hmm. who, um, where he takes the, the name, the title of his, of his series from. He wrote this poem. He's like this hate street poet <laughs> who is like, you know, walking up and down on hate street right around the corner from where we live now, strangely. Um, and he had this poem, like it was called all watched over by machines of loving grace. And, you know, I'll quote just like a little, you know, couple of couple of lines from it. But it's uh, it sort of it channels this um, describes a world in which computers merge with nature to create a kind of altruistic godlike being that can take care of everyone and sort of manage the world in a, mm-hmm. in, a, in, a, in a harmonious fashion. And it's like this. And it's a world, quote, where mammals and computers live together and mutually programming harmony like pure water touching clear sky. So this is, you know, Stuart Brandon is is an expression of that world where right. c- c- cybernetic ideas that were, you know, developed by Nor- Norbert Wiener um, entered into the counterculture, and they were very powerful, and they inf- influenced people, and who who went out and set up communes based on these sort of decentralized notions of information networks where. Everyone, you're envisioned. A person is just envisioned as a piece, as a, as a node in an information network, and you're all just we're all just information talking to each other, and that we would ultimately self-organize in a harmonious way if we're just sort of let, um, you know, uh, are allowed to kind of be, be natural in in a in an unstructured way without any um, false hierarchies or structures imposed on us. Mm-hmm. So that was like a thing that happened, and a lot of those. Uh, communes and uh, Adam Curtis interviews some people from those communes is because what 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 happened it was like a deregulated society essentially where you, but in a deregulated society where actually the rules of of these of of some of these communes you know forbade people to actually come together and join forces right. and so you if you and they would like have these sessions where people had to uh, work out their differences or work out their conflicts one to one, and no one could aid anyone else. And so, of course, the people who are the most dominant, who are the most domineering, who have like the strongest kind of willpower, like dominated everyone else. And it was, and and out of these deregulated societies emerged basically cults of personality, like little tyrannies, yeah, little tyrannies, yeah. And so, and and, no one else could like come together to combat them. It's weird. Yeah. yeah, and like one of the, one of these... Um, the woman was interviewed. It was kind of yeah, sad, one, right? Yeah, one of these, I think it was called New Synergia, uh, this, this, um, this uh, commune called Synergia. I think it was, it was developed 
specifically a, a, like built on Norbert Wiener's cybernetic uh, sort of principles, or like or like a version of a version of their of, of of those ideas. You know, I don't think Norbert Wiener ever would would like ever uh, uh, you know. Um, um, suggest something as crude as, as crude as that, you know. But yeah. but but it doesn't matter. So anyway, so the sewer brand represents this, the 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 meeting point of um, the the Cold War military industrial kind of corporate ideology that of America in the 1950s, right? And the the counterculture of the late 60s and uh, early and, and 1970s that was supposed to be a rejection of it. He was like, he kind of shows that they they are one world really, and mm-hmm. and and he would really. And you know, so he was. Uh, I think uh, in 1968 he did that demo uh, at Stanford um, University where he demoed this first internet-connected workstation. And then so he got in with those with those people pretty tightly. And in 1972 he did what was essentially what he'd, he this kind of propaganda piece for for ARPA. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it for Rolling Stone magazine where he hung out at at, at that laboratory um, in Stanford, and he. Uh, you know, watch these hackers as they call as they as they call themselves because they were they would hack the, the hackers took on a slightly different uh, meaning now. Um, but back 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 in the 19, in like the early computer e- e- days when uh, computers only existed in these big institutions like in universities that were doing you know uh, research for the Pentagon or in giant corporations, uh, hackers were people who uh, when they left their job they'd like still use the computer. To hack some kind of program together for their own, for their own, mm-hmm. for just as a hobby, not oh. an official thing, but you just sort of hack things. And so he would, ha- he would, he was hanging out with these guys after hours, and they were like hacking together, you know, the first computer games. Mm-hmm. And he would watch them play, and he would talk about them, kind of loving Lord of the Rings and uh, loving Tolkien, and uh, them also having long hair and being against the Vietnam War, and them basically being cooler than the hippies also he he did this thing where he said they're not taking drugs but it's like the buzz buzz buzziest scene he's seen since like the grateful dead uh this is 1972 in the rolling stone so he's he's writing for a for for like you know for like essentially a suburban a young suburban audience that is like being influenced by the counterculture and he's telling them in 1972 that the people working for the military because the people he was hanging out with were military contractors i mean they were drawing their salaries straight up from a military agency, ARPA. Mm-hmm. And he was telling them that these people were creating a better future, that they're more radical than sort of the, the radicals. And, and, so, and so the fact that he would go on and like promote these guys a decade later, right, um, uh, isn't, a, isn't surprising because it was actually, it was, it was a gradual buildup. It wasn't something that came out of nowhere. It's funny, it sounds like he's like a... Um kind of smart but ultimately yeah. malevolent precog why would he um, describe this basically military contractors as that cool I mean it just but you know but on the other side again after watching this doc and seeing the guy yeah he some, seems smart and still very lucid and well he's 80 but at the same time like he says like the weirdest kind of silliest things um and some of it was somehow left in the movie and i even wrote it down so to any criticism about him being super just excited about technology he would just like say that there's very little um malevolence it's just cool tools and people try to figure out how to use them yeah 
cool tool, it, just cool tools, and people try to figure out how to use them. And then he would also say, oh, I don't remember in what context, but I wrote it down because it was just too much. He says, like, oh, you t- you, some, to someone, you're taking ideology way more seriously than technology you're trying to protect. <laughs> basically, again, in regard to any kind of criticism of his stance, he basically would say there is no stance. Yes. To like, which is kind of smart. There is no stance. I have no stance. I have no ideology. Yes. Why are you attacking this technology? It's cool. So, again, I, I mean, first I said, oh, it seems silly, but then no, 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 it's not silly. He's like acting very smart. But why is he doing that? Do you think he, there's a chance he's genuinely like this? I mean, he might be genuinely like that, but then, but, 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 oh, but I'll tell you this. I mean, uh, what's what. what what kind of surprised me when I was, you know, doing researching this for for my book is that like, because you have to remember like the the position of glorifying people who are working for a military contractor to build, you know, like ro- robots and uh, information networks that were being going to be used by the military was not the default stance of a young person in the Bay Area at the time, and especially a young person who sort of. Uh, affiliated with the counterculture. So there was a, 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 another wing of the counterculture that was, at the same time that he was writing this stuff, was protesting at Stanford, that, that very same university that he went to, you know, that he was connected to, that he never really, whose, whose orbit he never really left because later on in his career when he was an adult, you know, he'd still be tied to the people who came out of Stanford uh, because he was tied to Silicon Valley and became right. a central, you know, uh, he became an entrepreneur. He started like the, one of the first you know, internet service providers in the Bay Area, you know, uh, called Well. That was like very, very, very um, sort of influential. And, uh, but so he was kind of tied to the Stanford world. Okay. So, so no, just, 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 just listen, just listen. So yeah, he is a secret agent, but like <laughs> people were at the same time calling, you know, trying to get like military research off campus and specifically targeting the sort of the constellation of ARPA funded um, institutes like the Stanford Research Institute, which was a very controversial um, institute that was actually very much involved in funding this computer research that he was doing, that he actually helped demo, you know, as like a guy who was controlling the videos and taking mm-hmm. and, and, and taking pictures because it was involved in the war in Vietnam at the time. And so, um, and, and, and there were huge protests. I mean, there was like, a, at some point, like the, people actually broke through and raided their offices and stuff like that. So... And because it wasn't just involved in building like information technology and building the early internet, but it was involved with um, you know developing uh, chemical war chemical weapons and chemical warfare strategies that, uh, in in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. So this was just like in Stanford and then MIT, another university that he's connected to, because his family's connected to it. All his family members went there. You know there are people like people people from this. Uh, SDS, the Students for a Democratic Society, I mean, they were specifically critiquing ARPA and sort of the information technologies that it was funding as like tools of control and domination. And even like, again, we people forget now because it's like the 90s and the dot-com boom or, you know, was like so uh, up, 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 um, optimistic about technology and things like that, that in the 1960s and the 1970s even, it was like a, a mainstream, um, very very normal position to have that computers are not tools of liberation, but are tools of bureaucratic, centralized control. Surveillance, Beca- right? Not just surveillance, but ju- ju- surveillance, but also but giving basically the power to bureaucrats and to already centralized institutions like corporations or or governments or the Pentagon, mm-hmm. security agencies, give putting more 
sort of information at, at their disposable, you know, disposal. So because all of these computers, they're huge, they're expensive, they're all housed in very, very powerful institutions, whether corporate or government. Uh, and, you know, there, you know, people were freaking out about this, even like something as like a central database with like people's um, social security numbers know, or something this like is, that. This is way more 1984 than Soviet Union ever could get people, to be. They, <laughs> yeah, there'd be like, there'd be like, you know, constantly uh, front page stories on the leading magazines in America, like of the Atlantic or something, you know, like, I don't know, with like a picture of Uncle Sam, you know, uh, at the controls of some kind of giant computer going crazy, you know, that kind of stuff. It but was, so it was a totally... So would you say Stuart Brand was at the forefront of like changing the yes, opinion? Yes, I mean, he was, he was, yeah. I mean, that, and so I think what he was doing, look, he's kind of knowing him better now a little bit or knowing his trajectory and even listening to him speak, guy's very methodical. He knows what he's talking about. And the one, you know, and he's, you know, he, we might, we can get into it a little bit later, but... Uh, like the reason why he even allowed these documentary guys, these, this pair of documentary filmmakers, to even make this film is pretty clear. He was, he knew that he could control them, that he could, you know, ha- get his version of his fam- uh, his life narrative on film, you know, and like so, the, the, basically the final cut would be his, and the narrative would be his. He's a very crafty guy, you know. He someone doesn't have that many successes in life. Um, and you know, it's, it's like very, very st- stable, like uh, business and cultural success all through his life, you know, without being a very, very methodical, kind of very crafty person and knowing what he's doing. And so he knew what he was doing because he was going against the prevailing cultural attitudes of much of, of, of America at the time and, and rebranding, you know, uh, military research into information technology into databases and all this stuff as something more radical than the radicals, more radical than the anti-war people. You know, I mean, he even put it this way. He said, like, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, like one of his arguments was like the anti-war, like people who are protesting against the war, well, they're like, they're just like, they're opposed to something only. They're not like creative. They're not creating anything new. These guys are creating something, new technologies that will actually, you know, bring world peace <laughs> to, to uh, and, and end the war. So they're, while working for, for the military that's involved in the Vietnam War, uh, that's, um, you might not have known that at the time, but the, the technology was, came out of the counterinsurgency, dis, uh, counterinsurgency um, research uh, that was being conducted during the Vietnam War. I mean, that's what the internet partially comes out of you know that, that an attempt to uh, create technologies that can sort of process large, large amounts of information and uh, crunch numbers to so that the government can sort of understand the world uh, better and 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 uh, sort of and faster or in real time what's going on like that these guys working for the military are actually the most anti-war anti-military people out there it's so I think he must have known what he was doing because he was it wasn't like he wasn't going with the flow I, I don't think especially you know people in his in his you know I don't know in, 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 at that at that time and your theory that that's just an accident or he's secretly why why was he doing that your oh. theory is just that he was a student because you know you can't say oh he was an agent it's just stupid like, I know we're just joking I don't yeah. think he was an agent no I think I think he represents like a current within the counterculture that was not opposed to, to this, you know, that was not opposed to the American. But to me, it's like, whatever, it's a whole, can be like a whole long conversation we shouldn't have right now. But I feel, don't understand. So let's say he was like semi, whatever, genuine. You say he probably didn't know about the whole military involvement or 
it just, uh, I mean, re- regarding the research lab and stuff, or if he knew for people of his, I don't know, even I don't know what to call it, class generation or positioning, that was not like a red flag. If he knew, like, or he didn't know. I, I think he, you know, it, he, I mean, he could not have not known. But if he knew, so for people like him, because I'm confused, I maybe because I'm an immigrant, I'm a foreigner. So he's of a generation who could be like anti-war, like anti-Vietnam war and stuff like that. And super anti-military industrial complex, stuff like that. But he was, was he? I don't even? think he was. Wait, because, you know, the film, again, it's such a panegyric, but, like, was he even anti-war? I don't think so. I, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure he, if probably pressed on it, he probably would be against the war. Okay. But, I mean, but, like, I know that Ken Kesey, when one of the sort of his, you know, his sort of, like, guru, you know, the guy that kind of brought, brought him into that world, into the counterculture and, and kind of launched his, you know, his career in, in that, mm-hmm. or his sort of his, I don't know, his, like, launched him, in, launched him on his path. You know, like there was a there was a famous speech uh, or an event, an anti-war rally in Berkeley, mm-hmm. uh, and Ken Kesey came up and he said, like, "What are you guys doing? Just like fuck the war, like fuck this. Just like we don't need to do anything. Just don't do anything." You're like we we. I mean, let me actually find the the quote here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ken Kesey at this anti-war rally in Berkeley. You know, he kind of channeled this very hippie libertarian uh, position, which is mm-hmm. very skeptical of, towards politics or organized politics, uh, and. Uh, like but not it, skeptical about the war? <laughs> well, I mean, against the war, but like that, um, that basically he was skeptical that you can do any, change anything with, you know, with traditional political activity, you know, which is like organized politics, trying to organize movements to, to mm-hmm. you know, organizing rallies, organizing people to, you know, vote, things like that. Very you know? libertarian. So yeah. his idea was, what are you supposed to do, drop acid? Well, just turn your back on it. I mean, he, the, 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 what he said was, do you, when he was telling people from a stage, you know, the, uh, people assembled, you know, against the war, he was saying like, you're all gonna not have any effect whatsoever. What should you do to stop the war? Well, do you know what, okay, so quote, do you want to know how to stop the war? He screamed, just turn your backs and fuck it. You know, I have to say, sorry, that's like totally off topic, but I mean, there's a war now in Russia and the Russians are considered like basically fascists. I'm talking, not the Russians who are involved in the war, <laughs> just, just the Russians who like uh, live in Russia, uh, couldn't or didn't, or just, I don't know, didn't want to emigrate or just leave. Yeah. And they're there and they might be like um, ambiguous or actually negative about the war, but, but yet they're there. I mean, so... Someone like Ken Kesey is allowed to say that about a pretty horrific imperial... Imperial war, yeah. Imperial war that America waged in Vietnam. And so, but in Russia, the whole narrative, because I, I sometimes still read periodicals, European or American, it looks like Russians have to just rise up, storm Kremlin. If they don't do it, if they don't do it, they're basically fascists. Yes, they have to self-immolate or, or, or else. Or just kill yourself. I don't, they should do something so radical that no one ever done any other... It seems like nation overall. That's a good point. It's a really and, good point. And, uh, you know, here here it is. No, I mean, like right now, I mean, the, the, the latest fucking thing that's come, you know, that's uh, bouncing around is, uh, you know, people are calling on the EU to, to ban, uh, uh, an EU, to create an a EU-wide ban on Russian visas. To Russians. To Russians, yes. And so a number of countries have already enacted their local bans. Estonia. Estonia. Um, Poland, I think, uh, yeah, maybe Latvia, uh, and I think, um, you know, uh, Finland is like talking about it. Thinking, yeah. Um, and so, again, this is sort of this collective punishment, basically demanding that people do something, you know, political, uh, about 
the war. And yeah, here we have Ken Kesey basically saying, just turn your backs on it. Fuck it. That's how you end the war in Vietnam. Just ignore it, essentially. And that's, by the way, the Russians who are doing that, just to say sane, maybe. It's been like uh, six months into this. But anyway, I have nothing new to say. I already said it. And it's just obvious, this, this weird double standard about how you react to the war your country wages. And... Uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It just like and I, I actually the one who respect people who do react to that and don't just turn their back. That's clearly a minority and you can resp- like expect also in a place that literally um in the last 30 years, but even before Soviet Union collapsed, there was already, um, the spirits were very down, had no kind of belief in any kind of, what do you call it, like political action or coming together. There's also, that's completely lost. You know, just in Russia in general, what do you like expect? People barely, there's no ideology, there's no politics. It's like apolitical, apathetic society. It's closer to, (laughs) we were just watching Zardos last night. There, um, what was the type of uh, characters there? Melancholic, um, oh, the melancholic, yeah. No, no, melancholic something. Uh, the, the, I mean, the melancholics, they call them. No, no, there was something funny. There were two words, melancholic, because they barely move, barely chew. <laughs> they're yeah, like, they're just not only, <laughs> yeah. But basically, melancholics who, uh, you know. And those are the people who care, yeah. The people who care are the melancholics, you know. The people who would actually want to do something political and would be against the war. I mean, in Russia. I mean, I think the people who are not political and don't care aren't melancholic. At all. You know, they're not, they just are living normally. But I think the people who do care and are kind of horrified by what's happening, they, they have like, they're just like, they're paralyzed. They're like cataton- in a catatonic state. Yeah. What do you expect? But I mean, so, I mean, so if this was, if we put, if we put Brand and, you know, Ken Kesey and, um, you know, if we put Brand in the Russian context now, maybe, you know, made him a Russian and put him in this war or put him in Russia during this war. He'd be like, he'd be like, what we need to do to change, you know, society is to actually develop new technologies uh, to, because this, these new technologies have progressive values built into them. And if more people adopt these new technologies, people are just going to automatically become better human beings. I mean, that's basically what I his position. I wonder actually how, though, he would like, how would he survive in the Russian landscape, in the current Russian landscape? I, I, I'm sure he would find a way, but I would just wonder what his shtick would be. I don't know if that, if that would be that, as you're saying. Yeah. It would be something else. He'd be working for United Russia as a, as a deputy of some kind. <laughs> um, or he'd be, he'd, be, he'd be Dmitry Medvedev's press secretary. I don't know. Um, I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, okay, let's go back to the film um, because I, we mostly just talked about actually Stuart Brand as he is, <laughs> as you know him to be. But then there's a movie, which is a whole different story and we didn't really talk about it and um i felt so hateful i actually had a hard time going to sleep that night <laughs> yeah me too yeah no i'm like it's actually weird it weirdly affected me also his presence there just the whole thing so partially because i'm in this um i'm, I'm a failure in this regard but um i was trying to pursue this project change makers on a bigger scale not as a short film but as a either a series or like a feature film with multiple characters so i've been like for I would say number of years interested in different documentary filmmakers and uh, what are they like like what makes them tick what kind of just like what kind of characters they are not and uh, that's connected to what kind of films they're making anyway and um while these two guys who made this um, um, third brand dog, they're not really change makers. They're like a different kind of animal that I wasn't really looking into that much because they're just like not particularly interesting. There, there's this type um, in my kind of chart. They're just the um, obsequious um, PR 
uh, video makers. I don't, I don't even know what to call what yeah. they make because it doesn't come off as films. Do you, do you know that's that's the first thing you said? Yeah. It seems like like a TV document, TV, TV segment, like long, really long TV segment. Yeah. So that's what it feels like, and it seems like that's kind of movies these guys make. But um, what's interesting about that because um, they have like a production company and uh, uh, they're clearly very um, prolific. Um, because if you chose this path, then you clearly have easy access to to the characters, to the personalities you you are making um, movies about. Because mm-hmm. you um, have zero um, threat to them, you come off as just this excited, um, pandering uh, fan that you are. Um, and uh, it, right, it's yes. actually kind of easy. You know, you're making a documentary. It's pretty easy to make whatever a film, a film some sort that is releasable. You attach yourself to like these like big names who are influential in the corporate world or in you know the cultural world, but very yeah, very traditional. And then you do you make. But it what's like, important is how what your stance on that. Yes. There is no basically there are going to be no um, uh, tension of any sort because all you're doing in a pandering way. You take exactly the narrative that is given to you and you just re- and you put it together. Like, yeah. To me, it seems so tedious to do that. You're just Almost, you're just a, you're the help basically. Yeah, glorified you come help. off as a I come off as a help for sure. Creating like propaganda yeah. narratives. This is the about type things. of filmmakers yeah. who made this film, and uh, one of them was there. He was sitting next to Stuart Brand during Q and A, just on the stage next to him, and he was looking. It's like Stuart Brand would look at the public, at the audience, and just would talk. Yeah, and this guy would mostly just even when he was answering questions and talking about supposedly his film, he would just look obsequiously at Stuart Brand. It's just like, it's like a weird, Stuart Brand was like the son <laughs> and the guy yes. and some, uh, whatever, by the way, PR stripe woman. Well, I'll uh, get into that. Yeah, crazy. was sitting, uh, PR stripe woman was sitting uh, on one um, side of Stuart Brand and this, the filmmaker on the other. And yeah, and it looked as, as if Stuart Brand even wasn't respecting him because it, um, the guy reached the, the level of obsequiousness <laughs> that was, I think, in the flattery that was literally felt like too much for Stuart Brand and almost embarrassing because I think Stuart Brand, again, as you say, is a pretty... Um, like lucid, methodical, uh, savvy guy, sees it as like something that coming off is a bit like no, too it looked body. bad. It looked no, bad, like, and, looked then, bad. and people in the audience were like even like snickering a little bit because because he he basically said that Stuart Brand created made San Francisco, created <laughs> counter, the counterculture in San Francisco, and made the world that we live in possible. <laughs> no, and made his career possible because he moved to San Francisco yes. because of what San Francisco is, and it was made by Stuart Brand. It was, Stuart Brand is actually like was put into the role of a god of like a, of who who minor minor San Francisco god. Yeah, who basically he he. Uh, uh, he willed the entire counterculture on the West Coast into existence. <laughs> and made this guy move here and eventually, it's just like, it's, it's bizarre. Yeah, no, it's, it, was, it, was, it was like such a weird, it was such a weird thing. Like, uh, I mean, uh, the whole, the, like, you know, we I, we kind of didn't get to it, but like, you know, what, the, the Stuart Brand's career after a sort of counterculture with the whole Holdorf catalog um, days is that he went and like went into the business world. I mean, he began, he got himself into the Silicon Valley and promoted these early entrepreneurs and called them hackers. He, and then he created a very, very influential um, business consulting company called Global uh, Business Network that was like very influential in that it was trying to bring it's kind of like, I don't know, like, I don't know how well, else to put it. You were telling me good business network, no? Yeah, I got it wrong. It's called the Global Business Network, but yeah. The Good Business Network, it sounds it would be, much it would better. Have been better. It's yeah. funnier. But Global Business Network, <laughs> that was like this early, I don't know how to, it's like, it would com- it combined like Cold War, sort of like game theory, 
um, kind of strat- strategic thinking with a kind of co- counterculture hippie aesthetic where like we're thinking about the long term you know, we're looking at like the complexity of the world mm-hmm. and basically then, you know, selling the, their services to like the worst, the worst corporations in the world, all the oil companies, nuclear uh, companies, um, you know, parts of the military industrial complex, weapons contractors. Like you go down the line of like the worst corporations in the world. And this guy was making millions of dollars, Stuart Brand, making millions of dollars consulting for them, you know. Um, and so, like, it's, 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 that's it's, a complete. That wasn't a chapter of his life, according to the film. But it does actually make sense because the whole this whole movie is actually presented and I think financed in part by Stripe. Mm-hmm. Stripe is this uh, credit card processor that actually processes the the Substack. The, the Substack payments on Substack. So um, but it's, watch your words, yes. But it's just, it's the largest exactly, and they're always offering me loans, uh, <laughs> and they're always offering me loans based on my Substack income. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Philip <laughs> exactly. It's like, hey, sir, you and an, you're a mid-level influencer. I only have to take. It's like ten percent. They want ten percent. Uh, they want a ten percent fee from the loan, which is not you know, it's not small. Um, uh, and so it's presented and like so on 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 stage with Stuart Brand and the filmmaker was this almost like an android. Like I can't even think of it. It's like it's like the, it's not it's not even a human being. It seems like she's it's this woman who was the, you know, did PR for, or whatever, strategic communications. I don't know what her role was with, with for Stripe. And Stripe has this thing where they launched where they're um, not only promoting the film and finance the film, but they have actually a whole section on their website where they, uh, like, um, use Stuart Brand as a way of, um, as a way of um, basically propping up their own corporate image because their whole thing is that Stripe is important because it helps the most creative people in the world, um, you know, um, get paid, right? Um, and I think it's like, uh, you know, what they call it, like, uh, <laughs> it's like uh, Stripe partners with millions of the world's most innovative businesses. These businesses are the result of many different inputs. Perhaps the most important ingredient is ideas right and the, and their whole section is ideas for progress uh. and and Stuart Brand's film you know is is a part of that it's like Stuart Brand is all about ideas and progress and and so the fact that this film is like corporate funded the fact that he's sitting next to a financial company uh, on stage thanking and, them thanking them you know and they're also publishing his book he has got a new book and they're doing some kind of like innovative thing where they're publishing it online and like readers can collectively edit his film um, his his book and like give inputs and then so then he'll like change the book based on their suggestions or something anyway, anyway so he's like f- firmly embedded with this you know the corporate world and it's not surprising you know so that he's in fully embedded with silicon valley and corporate america because he is like a creature of that world um and that that of course is not talked about in the film at all uh, at all yeah what's talked about is like the fact that he's actually trying to save the world again before he dies right yeah so this old thin tall guy who looks like what do you call grief in English uh, a vulture. vulture who looks like a vulture I mean, we might actually uh, post either a video he's got a vulture like yeah vulture like look so lucid still interesting I mean not that I'm like I mean not he's, everyone is that lucid at 80 
No, no, he's 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 gonna live to like a hundred. And he seems actually way more like aware than the I don't know thirty something year old filmmaker next to him. Yeah, way more lucid in some ways, active in the, in the way brain. more. I mean, what, <laughs> seems to be he's qu- more quick clever. Witted, he's faster. Clever. Yeah, he's he's yeah. he's yeah. Whereas, and he's not afraid of being on stage. But anyway, um, what I want to say is that so the the film right that's like supposedly uh, according to the PR stripe woman. Um, captures and like tells the story of his entire life like from from like basically from birth yeah. uh, and he, she was um, impressed how usually the films about someone significant uh, is made about their 20s or 30s when they were actually active and doing something but this movie is like really stands out because it's like from the beginning to I don't know <laughs> closer to the end yeah, but all but focuses on the end right because that because it's the film is actually not about him his life as like the counterculture guy there's a little bit of it but it's interesting most of the film is actually uh, and that's what makes it a real it's about Russia strangely I, I was going there uh, yeah. sorry <laughs> yeah but most of the film is about how he is like active now I guess he started in his 70s if not early and, not, and still active in this project <laughs> bringing an extinct animal back from right. the dead doing a Jurassic Park doing a Jurassic Park in, in Siberia in, in northeastern Siberia there was actually a lot of um, time devoted to this and I was started looking into it and by, by chance because we were talking to this um, Harvard professor anthropologist Sonia Bernstein I kind of learned from her so there there is this like um, Russian um, scientist um, Dmitry Zimov scientist Mad scientist. Mad, like, you know, mad. Because he's mad. like, has mad, he's crazy like, ideas. He, yeah, but he also, he looks kind of mad. He looks like a mix of something like Zizek and I don't know. He's like the scientist from Back to the Future, you know. Back, or, uh, <laughs> the Russian, or that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so Dmitry Zimov, he uh, lives in Siberia in the Republic of Saha. And he, um, late 80s, so it's been a while since he started. And it was more, obviously, independently funded. And now it's like this huge project. Uh, late 80s, he started this project that he met, uh, he called Pleistocene Park. Mm-hmm. And this place to scene park is basically in a way like a kind of like a reservation in the Siberian tundra that is all about, yeah, kind of like the idea is that you have to, uh, they want to bring extinct species back to life and populate place to scene park with them in order to, it's not just for its own sake, in order to reverse certain um, climactic changes that the Siberia already undergone. Yeah. And so basically return to, to save the permafrost, right? Yes. Yes, but it's interesting. But their idea is that these animals that could be potentially brought back from extinction yeah. would would help facilitate this. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, that's so the idea. it fits in on like a larger, I mean, a pretty, uh, it's a very uh, big exactly vision. It's a utopian too. Oh, yes, like that you're, uh, that, we're, that, we're, that the world is going to shit. I mean, it's, there's like global warming. Mm-hmm. And one of the, actually, one of the more most dangerous aspects of that, of the glo- global warming is the permafrost, right? When permafrost melts, uh, it tr- it releases all the trapped like organic matter that's in the permafrost, and that organic matter sort of rots and produces another kind of greenhouse gas that's even more powerful. And so, methane, methane yeah, methane, which is very toxic. Uh, well, just it's it's uh, it's just it's a it's it's traps heat, so if it gets into the atmosphere, uh, it's very it's a very powerful global warming gas. So it like it's, it'll it's, so what'll happen is it'll once the permafrost melts. Um, it'll rapidly increase the rate of global warming, you know, to make everything even more warm. So it's like there's right. like a, there's like a, and it's already happening. Uh, right. And so the idea behind this park is that you create these. Um, so the, mam- the woolly mammoths <laughs> that live that have been extinct for I don't know how many ten thousands of years, you know, 
Uh, so the idea is that you bring back the woolly mammoth, and and because what the woolly mammoth did is they would like you know, they would. Uh, with their weight I mean all kind of you know there's also like the bison up there and all the sort of elk and all these things and horses that lived quite but a number of them is most important because yeah, he's so and they happy would like, they, would, they, would, they would push the soil down and they would push the sort of ice and the, uh, and the snow and compact it into the ground and to and what it did it helped keep the firm across together <laughs> right um, and so, but so it's, but to me, it seems like just such a crazy idea. I mean, first of all, forget the crazy idea about trying to uh, recombine elephant DNA with DNA that they get because that's how they want to do it. So they've right, gotten yeah. DNA from woolly mammoth, and so they have Stuart Brand traveling to one of the farthest points in Siberia. Basically, it's like the northern points, northeastern North point yeah, of Siberia. And he's like traveling there, you know, with his, you know, uh, Canadian goose. Uh, like, Which is also ironic. It's like right on camera. I mean, does he know how a Canadian goose gets? It's like uh, uh, feathers. A lot of people protest yes, against I know. them. Yeah, yeah. No, but it's funny because he's like, I'm a conservationist. I love animal. I yeah. love animal yeah. world. Okay. Well, you know, he's look. This is sometimes you have to sacrifice a few animals to save the world. Okay. So That's basically, the fuck the goose and long live wool mam- woolly mammoth. Yes, exactly. And so he's traveling there. So I mean, that's what the movie's about. It's like about him. It's casting him in, in this personal role as savior who is like personally I mean I don't know what his role is with this thing he's he's just like a guy who attached himself to this project yeah because it's not he, it's not his idea maybe he brings some finance I no, bet he brought always. money and so I think that these guys these Russian guys I mean they're 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 clearly need need money and they're getting yeah. funded funding from the West I don't know how that funding is being impacted by the war by the sanctions and yeah, this who knows? is not talked about in the film obviously uh but like he goes there and he's like himself, you know, he's in the room where the woolly mammoth remains that they just uncovered. He's like, they're taking the DNA sample. And he's like looking at it, you know, <laughs> he's, <just> like, <laughs> he's like, what the fuck are you doing there, old man? Like just, you know, you should be sitting on your, your very luxurious houseboat in Tiburon. And, and actually yeah. there is uh, a scene where he's in his luxurious houseboat with, his wife, with yes. his wife. But again, like because of who makes it, it's so, what do you call it when it's a setup? Oh, it's yeah, it's like it's a it's a well, it's yeah, it's like a fake um, um, fake observational footage. Yes, they just had the people reenact basically their life. Yes, well, what do you mean Brand. people? No, Stuart. they're themselves reenacting. Yes. I bet it's like um, you know, you set up a camera, he gets but prepared. Yeah. But everything you know. was like that. So his whole trip to Siberia was a was a re- was a setup, right? So they followed him there so that he can. No, just... but that's a bit better than just I don't know when you see somehow the scene where supposedly casually. So he's sitting in his robe, uh, I think, uh, reading newspaper, drinking yeah. his morning tea, all very casually. And very casually, his wife comes in in some kind of like white robe, and she supposedly just like woke up. Yeah. It, I mean, that's like the essence of this film. It's like a promo. It's like yes. a promotional film, and they look like perfect for whatever for their age, and everything's perfect. And, and it's so, but but them living on a boat is supposed to be this countercultural thing. They're actually they're supposedly like slumming it because when they actually moved in when he moved to that boat when he was younger uh-huh. in the 80s i mean i think w- w- like that whole place is really ritzy now but it used to be like the poor people used to live on these boats cuz they yeah and like but then i don't think that's that's yeah, anymore yeah that i can't judge he persevered and now it's not <laughs> okay, poor he gentrified anymore. the neighborhood is what <laughs> he, he did he, he might have gentrified, <laughs> he gentrified the it. boat community now yeah. it looks super nice of course and actually also his wife that's already i think a second wife the uh, one after um the native american one she looks like a very i mean it's funny like a very traditional pacific heights um san francisco rich lady mm-hmm. which I think tells you something. I don't know. There's something about the look that no matter what you say about being like 
counterculture or being active in counterculture and you didn't care about marriage it's just it's just all doesn't matter because the way you kind of like the face you earned through the years of living and how you look and your choices kinda. yeah <laughs> just really um i feel like reveals what you're saying about Stuart brand basically he is this um kind of like very savvy business PR guy. Yeah. And that's a kind of fitting, he just was, a fitting but, but life he, but for him. That, that was launched in the counterculture movement. Yeah. And, so. and, and it's funny, like that's actually a guy from Warhol years ago. What's this book, uh, America? I don't know. He says like how you meet a person, you might even hang out with whatever, him or her, it doesn't actually matter what gender. And uh, you kind of like, you think you know them. And then one day you meet their partner. Yes. And then it's like a whole new kind of layer <laughs> of that person gets revealed. Yes. Because that's actually super... It's a real, I'm, I'm, there's something real about it, basically. Yes. Very real, yeah. yeah. And the whole maybe image that was constructed before you met the partner gets shattered because that's the real stuff. And I'm retelling actually Warhol in a very, I feel, um, not uh, like funny way because he's funny yeah. about this. And uh, yeah, but I think it's very true. And back to Brand, that's true about him too. He can pretend to be what the fuck he wants. But she shows up, she's in the movie too. I'm like, what the hell is this? Yeah. Oh yeah, you can't You see counterculture yeah it doesn't come across as that i know no, it's just it's like one little segment i know it's not that no no it's important because i do think that it's like one of these things where they the the film completely skirts his whole the involvement of corporate america you know yeah. and this presents him as this guy who's trying to save the world and trying to pr save the environment selfless radical and and trying to save the environment in this sort of like uh, very uh, radical way which is you know bring back species that have been extinct in mm -hmm. this case for you know for what, like, I don't know, it's been like 10,000 years or something? Like More something, maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, so it's, so it's not even, you know, meanwhile, meanwhile, you know, in his, where he lives, he lives in the Bay Area, he lives in, in on the bay, basically in a boat. Uh, like there is an extinction, there's extinction events happening all around him. I mean, you know, right. this is something that we're, you know, trying to deal with a little bit in the film that we're making, Rowan and I, you know, about the uh, the water oligarchs in California. It's like all the fish are extinct in California because they put all the dams there and and, the, and they're just, and the environment has been radically altered and the w water has been heating up that like there are no, no, there are no more fish in, you know, in the rivers in California. Like then there's like right off the coast, uh, you know, there's the kelp forests that are going extinct where all the sea otters live actually. You know, this is happening right now. So his whole like, and it's happening, you know, partially because of global warming and global warming is caused by the sort of runaway industrial processes in the world and, and consumerism and the overproduction of everything. It's like the, so he doesn't focus on that. Like, at, he, all. at all. There's no yeah. discussion about or critique of you know, industrial capitalism, of consumer culture, of corporate America. I mean, it's not even fucking talked about. It's really weird. And not all it is is like, I'm a conservationist. I just want to, I want to save the world. And we're going to stop global warming and stop like the melting down of the permafrost, the yeah. permafrost by going through this convoluted process of basically creating, recreating Jurassic Park with mammoths, you know? It's really in, crazy. In like this, in this northern part, you know, in basically the Arctic Circle. Like, like what the fuck? And it's like, and it's not even interrogate, interrogated at all. And no. even the people, they have some couple of critics in the film, like who are sort of critical or allowed to be critical of Stuart Brand. And they don't even allow them to say that because I wouldn't be surprised if they even talk about that. Maybe it's just not they in just, the film. They were cut for, because there were some people kind of approaching that argument and, you know, in various debates and various interviews that they had with, you know, kind of his friends that are critical of him. Um, 
it never even gets to that you know so it's like he's it's just the weirdest thing and so but it and it does but it does make sense if you know his history i mean like because he is a he is a creature of corporate america he believes in corporate america i think that you know um what fred turner talks about in his book is that when they launched the 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 global business network you know they were kind of whereas maybe before you know he thought that social change happens in these sort of radical communities and the counterculture that that all fell away in the 80s and 90s and he began to believe that uh social change happens at the corporate level you know and so and so that's kind of how you justify working with corporations and then like uh, companies like shell and you know and whatever you know and like uh, and um uh, and so and so, yeah, I mean, and so he's directly was taking money from the oil industry, I mean, from the petroleum industry. So it's like it doesn't really, it's 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 not surprising. It's bad the movie didn't tell me this. I know nothing about it. No, this. no, and of course, because the movie isn't a movie. It's a, it's like a personal propaganda project. I mean, here's the thing. Is I, you know, when when I got in touch with him, I mean, I wasn't expecting him to get in touch, to, to respond. I mean, I tried, when I, I emailed him and I wanted to see when if you he'd be. you were writing the book. Yeah, I wanted to see if he'd be able, be willing to sit down for an interview because I'm looking about, at the development of the internet and, you know how it comes out of the you know how the counterculture is tied up in it and all this stuff. I wasn't, I don't know if he, if, I don't know if he looked me up and, and read some of my work and said, well, no, no, this guy's like critical of the internet and critical of these things, so I'm not going to do it. But you know, so he of course rejected my my request and told me uh, with his, his he he wrote a couple lines and with the, he he concluded the email with, may your book thrive. <laughs> <laughs> and now you think he cursed you? <laughs> that's how, yeah, exactly. That, that was that was his curse. Yeah, that's that's the Stuart Brand curse. And so and so, but even like you know, when I was developing the when we moved to Los Angeles and uh, was developing this uh, now aborted um, uh, project to to turn my book into a into a documentary series. Um, you know, a guy that I was developing with Germany, Jeremy, you know, he is like, one of the things that he wanted to do was obviously get in touch with Stuart Brand and some of the main characters of the book and have them, you know, be right. involved in the project. And I was like, well, you're not going to get that because, you know, like these guys are very protective of their... The uh, mythology, of their, right? Of their mythology and maybe Stuart Brand like nobody else because he is, I mean, he is in the PR business, you know, you, and and he's very media savvy. And if you know anything about media, if you know anything about how this shit works, you never give your life story to someone you don't control or that you don't without any control over it. And so, right. I mean, that's what only like basically poor people do. You can do that with a poor person. That's why all documentaries are about poor people. Yeah, the, the ones that are actually critical and, and can get kind of interesting and get intimate. With their subjects and they're all about poor people and this is the this is something you always talk about and i feel like i almost i know i'm <laughs> i didn't discover it but it feels like i did because yeah. to me it's such a revelation and it's disgusting yeah and so and then the the the, the documentaries that deal with more powerful people or they're very you know, people, rare and sometimes no, they, they, get they deal be. with them but they never are with their involvement right uh, and I mean, maybe they're like in prison or something, you know, then maybe you can get them There's to talk. There's like actually dur Durst, Durst films. But he's a crazy, per crazy person. So, But also the filmmakers, it's very important. It's so rare. It comes from a very, very rich right. Jiraki so um, uh, finance Jewish family. Anyway, so No, no, access, it's actually access. you're right. I'm, I'm wrong. You're right in that it's not a crazy person. Is that they are people of the same class. Yes. Yeah, and it's so rare that people of that class, that people of that class are often documentary filmmakers, yes. but never do they ever like actually look at their own. No, and, look, in a, I, and also in a critical And look, manner. Uh, seriously, I was making this documentary about the Resnicks, about the Resnick family, Stuart and Linda Resnick, you know, some of the richest people in, in, in California. 
I mean, you know, as close as I got to them was the gate in front of their Beverly Hills mansion. And that was it. With an armed guard, you know, looking at me, you know. So it's like that's that's the kind of like participation you get out of people who have any power uh, in our society. And Stuart Brand obviously rejected my attempts to get in touch yeah. with them, and he wasn't the only one. I mean, most people that were. Um, that I, I'd li- I that were still alive and that I wanted to get to for my book that were involved in the internet, you know, uh, would not co- co- cooperate with uh, my project, which is not surprising. I mean, which it's just, makes it cool. Yeah, it makes it cool, and it and so and so, but it makes it sort of like you know, I have you have to do an unauthorized history yeah. of these of these people because that's how it works. And this and th- but that also proves actually to me it's like oh, of course you wouldn't get to them, but it also proves that you're honest and that's a real. Not a PR, some kind of pandering look. That's like a real, yes. I don't know, research, real yeah. story of something. Um, even if you get whatever, you might get something wrong, but at least you really tried. You're not a PR person because yes. if those people are willingly talk to you, yes, they're like questions, right? And, and that and and that's just a golden rule of journalism. Period. I mean, like let's say someone like let's say Edward Snowden and Laura Poitras, right? Right. I mean, that's a, it's, it's the same exact dynamic similar, actually because right. he wanted her to tell the story because he knew that she would mythologize it. Yeah. And 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 that's why he went to Glenn Greenwald and they and they kind of they collaborated because they all have the same they they all have the same interest. Like you know, they have the same he politics. Pick you. Yeah. No, exactly. And that's why he went to those people. That's why he went to her at first. And then she brought the story to Glenn Greenwald and then they worked on it together. Like, I mean, it's it's like, the thing is about journalism is like, n- sources go to you because they want to use you. And so, you know, it's generally, and like you can sort of, if you're smart about it, you can sort of use them in a, in a more nuanced way. You can like tell their story in a nuanced way, but generally no one comes to you, uh, you know, and like it offers their life story to you unless they want something out of you. Uh, they they see a benefit. And sometimes maybe it's okay to still go with it. Yes, of course, like of course. You can, you, and you can, you know, I don't know. Like I talked to Pavel Durov. You know, like you can talk about these things. And I know that he wanted to. You, I know why he got in touch with me because we had the same kind of interest. And in, I was writing about the involvement of American intelligence agencies in the crypt, the crypto, and the sort of the privacy technology right. movement, and. He is in that whole same space, and he—they're all constantly trying to discredit him because he's a competitor to their product, and so he's been warring them with them for years, and and so our kind of, you know, our—you um, could see it, eye to eye. We, I yeah, could see eye to eye, and our interests essentially aligned. But even in when I wrote that story, it wasn't like I wasn't presenting him as some kind of pure. Uh, righteous person. I just, right. you know, I, I, you know, addressed the sort of the moral, sort of the ambiguity, and the the generally the bullshit of the privacy world that there is no such thing, and anyone selling it is selling you a lie. Right. You know, and so, but I know why he came to me. You know, and it was it was obvious, and so, and I, and and it's and it's why very rarely anyone actually comes to me because I because uh, with their story and are just willing to give it to me. You know, because like they know that I won't just take it as a as a given and. Um, and like serve their interests, but this this film is an example of like the most extreme version of that, right? Like where right. the 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 documentary filmmaker like or whatever. Like it feels like um, Stuart uh, Brand was making the final cut. Yeah, that's how this movie like plays out. Oh, and before I forget, the um, time they spend on this 
um, the park in Siberia and his, him saving the world now. Uh, but also, not only he's doing that, he's also doing the Long Now Watch project. Yeah, I mean, that's and another... they would focus for a while on that. I mean, it was just such bullshit. But yet he attached himself to some other some other person's project. You know, yes, uh, not his. But yeah. it, isn't it bankrolled? You said by Bezos. I think Bezos is very much involved in that project. Yes, it's to build this ridiculous clock hidden in in, in a mountain somewhere. Um, that's like. Basically, I don't know, like. It's like I don't know how. It's like this m- customized m- Mac- m- mechanical yeah, like, that will ring like once a thousand years or some some ridiculous thing that can survive millennia. It's like what are you? And and he's just such bullshit. He's like thinking. Well, now we have to think about if we think about the world in a long term frame of like let's say not like a year or ten years, but a thousand years. Like centuries. That'll change the way that we plan and that we think about the world will be more respectful of whatever i don't know nature maybe or or what we leave behind but that's just bullshit <laughs> that's not yeah because <laughs> it's just that's like and some also hit, like okay fine like as a, no, as, a, yeah. as a sentiment no the sentiment maybe if it was true great but if that that sentiment goes uh against the video of him supervising all this workers doing this uh, long now clock yeah um i mean how you spend your resources or like what kind of projects is this what is it it does no good to the world so you know not only it's like a weird pr spin but also if you see what it's attached to what he's actually doing like a stupid clock in the mountain spending maybe like i don't i don't know what a billion dollars and it just like looks like (laughs) extremely expensive project there are a bunch of people running around and he just comes to supervise like um yeah for for the for the documentary yeah it just uh, makes no sense and again bezos never mentioned right no i'm trying to think of actually it's a i mean i'm looking at it two years ago it's cost uh, what is it? 42 million to build. Oh, okay. Well, I said a billion, uh, maybe. And Jeff but... Bezos is the fu- fu- funds, funding it. So, I mean, just, and if you think about how ridiculous it is, Jeff Bezos, it's like the, the, the king of trash. Yes. The, basically, the emperor of trash. Yes. He is the guy who's making, he allows you to buy trash that you will use for just a little bit and throw, and it'll end up, you know, in, in the earth or in the ocean, right? Uh, leaching toxic chemicals. For the next thousand years or more, you know, for the next ten thousand years, right? He's like, uh, this guy is funding a project that's supposed to make us more mindful of how uh, you know we need to act in a way that sort of takes into 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 um, into consideration the long term impacts that we're having on the world and and all this stuff. Like, it just makes no fucking sense. I mean, it's just it's so. And the whole clock is actually like a vanity project for both. Stuart Brand and for Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos is basically, you know, creating some kind of like freaky underground uh, clock uh, monument to his own wealth. Like, I don't like that's the 10,000. That's the 10,000 year clock. Well, if it's presented that way, I would say, yeah, that sounds like Bezos. That's all right. Yeah. But, but don't don't sell me this bullshit about taking care of the planet. This documentary is really a, like, I mean, and, and I'm kind of bummed because we actually had to run because our daughter, uh, you know, Eurasia, she, uh, she, she wasn't sleeping right. So we had to actually cut out earlier. She, she wouldn't go to sleep without us. And so... Um, I, I, I like these are questions that I would kind of would want me. to ask. Yeah, without <laughs> me. Well, exactly. Without her. us, I mean, you know, the parent, the parental unit that's now a, a unified whole. Yeah. <laughs> See, this is this is typical male behavior, right? Typical ma- male patriarchal thing is like I don't even separate myself out. I don't see the w- the mother as even a separate unit for me. 
it's under my umbrella, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and you're the, the one who actually was, was way more nervous than me. <laughs> I know. I have like mom characteristics. <laughs> I actually have it. I was trying to record a video because we had to basically cut short, not the film, but the Q&A with Stuart yep. Brand, which I was kind of a bit bummed. But <laughs> while I'm recording a video of Stuart Brand, <laughs> Yash on the background saying, she's not sleeping, she's not sleeping, she's not sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm tough, except when it comes to her. Yeah, but so I cut. Yeah, so I didn't get to uh, I didn't get to ask her this question, but I did enjoy. We we kind of well, we we were we were left in a very rude manner, which I liked. We were very we were like a few rows from the front, you know, very close to Stuart Brand, and we and everybody was just like watching him open and, mouth, like thinking that they were in, in the presence of some kind of uh, historical figure that's incredible and. And yet we like get up and we have and our leave, like yeah. bike helmets and things like that. And like <laughs> I, I stepped on, on the toes of every single person who was sitting to our, to our left. Right. Wait, but what did you want to ask him? If I had got the opportunity, I probably would have asked him about why was he not talking about his role, his involvement in all these corporations, these corporations that are actively destroying the environment. I mean, he's presenting himself as like a guy who's before his death, his last final uh, sort of action that he wants to do is to, to help save and revert, save the, the world by reversing global warming. <laughs> by bringing back extinct by animals. By bringing back an, a ma- the mammoth. <laughs> it's fucking nuts. It's nuts. But it sounds very cool, doesn't it? It does sound very cool. And it sounds like a person is like so grand that that's what and he, he truly And he's can. trying to do it just from his humble uh, houseboat off the coast in South Salido. Right. And so, but, in, but it's like, but I, so I wanted to ask him about the corporate stuff. I mean, I... And it just does not get addressed, which is not surprising because the film is, it kind of all falls into place when you know who he is. It's like, it's underwritten by a Silicon Valley um, company. Um, he is deeply embedded in, into Silicon Valley, into the culture, into the actual the business structures. He's a guru to people like uh, Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs credits, credits him with inspiring him, you know, no, um, and uh, I know that Jeff Bezos is like a big, is a big fan of his. I think he Wait, was thinking was about- Wait, was it Stuart Brand at some point? Was it him? He had like a weird position in Google or some other uh, like uh, high priest? No, that's a different guy. That's- um, Who is that's, this? Am I um, mixing them up? No, no, no. It's a different guy. That's the guy who was invented the TCP IP um, protocol that sort of uh, the routing protocol. Oh, the protocol. guy who actually invented the internet. Yeah, he's- uh, uh, You wrote about him. Yeah, yeah. Now I can't even remember what his name is. Uh, if Stuart Brand was here, he'd know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> you can keep that in Vint Surf <laughs> guy with the weirdest name Vint Surf it's like Cerf. it's like uh, sounds like a porn actor yes it's true yeah if Stuart Brand was here he would figure it out at Quirker <laughs> <laughs> he wouldn't have to use Google it created by uh, Stuart Brand probably invented Google no. <laughs> anyway alright um, I don't know do you have anything else let me look at my notes <laughs> I have notes. <laughs> well, I have, okay, there's this one. I have okay. this one. It's like my note I was watching the film. It's like trying to bring back mammoth. Meanwhile, they can't save elephants from being killed off. <laughs> that's a good one. Savior of humanity. Cool new tool. No agenda. That's the, that's the, that's a direct quote actually from Stuart mm-hmm. Brand. Uh, no mention of industrial civilization, consumerism, capitalism. No, that's pretty much it, I guess. I don't know how else oh, to I add. just realized. I think if I if I did that, maybe I said the guy's name, the Russian scientist's name right. He's Sergei Zimov. I think I might have said something else, but anyway. Okay, if you have no closing remarks, um, uh, that's it. I think you know. I think we as a community should come together and work together to make this world a better place. 
All right. Yes. And yet we have. Don't we like whatever we watch? Usually it's like only hateful things they have to say. Yeah. Well. Very very rarely anything good. We don't have anything even. Something very rarely. Sometimes maybe maybe you know what? Maybe we'll um, do something kind of like positive. positive something yeah. we like, not something we hate. Yeah. Which is I feel like. Well, people say we're kind of negative sometimes. I mean, I get really? that. I get that sometimes. No, people, you don't get that. I don't. Uh, from whom? We don't. You don't talk to anyone, so. <laughs> It's, the, it's probably the best way to, you know, to avoid, to, to, to not have your... Um, <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> it was a genuine question. Like, from, <laughs> from who? Who's, like, my mom who's talking, I'm negative. Like. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> in relation to other people, well, yeah, in relation to other, to, you know. <laughs> like, other family members? <laughs> I, there's a there's a there's a friend that I had a long time ago that said I was kind of negative. Matt, Matt Lutz? Yeah. But you are negative. Okay, see, there you go. <laughs> I'm trying to make me. Even... Wait, but, <laughs> but you know what? Not talking to anyone is the best strategy <laughs> because no one will like kind of criticize you, make you feel like <laughs> you're like inadequate. I know. So so um, all right. So podcast is actually how I talk. Yes. <laughs> It's the most efficient. It's the most efficient because you can <laughs> right. say one thing and then a lot of people different a lot of different people hear it. So you don't have to repeat yourself. Yeah. I feel like that's how I kind of hang out with people. That's my best way. <laughs> Just but you know, but you also have. A, it's funny because you. I know that you get sometimes annoyed if you have to repeat yourself. No, but it's true. And so in this case, you can just say one thing and then be like, "Well, actually, just listen. Listen to the podcast. Um, it's time code, <laughs> and it's like minute twenty five, uh, thirty second mark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I wouldn't repeat myself. I really don't feel like saying this over again. <laughs> In fact, I should get all the snippets. And you, should, you should index it. No, index them. <laughs> no, but then to send them as voice messages. Yes. Not to talk, right? Because <laughs> I'll have all my takes on everything. Or you can just string, yeah. You can, you can use the AI stuff generator to like, even if you have to say something new, you could string it together out of... No, but you know, I know you're laughing at it, but I'm actually being serious. I'm not, I'm, I know. It's like my way of like well, hanging I'm out. I'm laughing at it just because it's so how true it is. is how I'm laughing at it. <laughs> right, well. right. I mean, I'm not. I'm not much different. <laughs> because ultimately, actually, if you think about it, when you hang out with people, on average, it's not that interesting. No. Conversations are not that interesting. Rarely something intellectually uh, stimulating happening or going on, <clears throat> and so actually, this is a better way of hanging out. Yeah, there's like a yeah, there's a. It's uh, usually just like a social ritual, um, right? Yeah. But here you cut the bullshit of the social ritual. There is no social. It's all. It's all. It's all usually mediated through technological platform. It's all like you know. They don't even see the person. You don't have to smell them. Don't right. have to yeah. look at them. You don't. Yeah, it's not awkward. I just. It's brain to brain. And you can cut out all the awkward parts, or, or <laughs> ed, 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 edit the parts where you you have a lot of you have power. Yeah, I have all the editorial <laughs> I like it. So hey, maybe maybe it's called some disorder, right? Because I actually that's my way. I mean, of... I think given that how many people that are doing podcasts, I think maybe this is a common the disorder. That's maybe maybe it is a, there's a disease. Maybe there's a disease that's running rampant. Yeah. Maybe it is uh, contagious. Podcast tinnitus. <laughs> it's a better conversation I have than yeah than not podcast. So on average, you can see how important this podcast is to me. <laughs> No, it's well. It's, it's your only window into socializing. <laughs> it's, it's my only time I socialize with anyone. 
<laughs> well, people would think it's a joke, but it's not. Yeah. Well, they really no one would like fully believe it. Yeah, part of That's it is because true. part of it is because we've we've moved around so much that like we've also like moved ourselves into like a corner where we don't know anyone pretty much. And, <laughs> wait wait yeah. a second, Yash. I didn't fully hit me. You know, it takes a while. Literally on the podcast. You had a revel- revelation right on on li- live on air. Yeah. Podcast is how I talk to people. Mo- and usually, in like more than half of the time, it's just me. So. <laughs> no, but other people. We have a guest, but it's that's kinda, what I'm saying. Yeah. That's the that's yeah. the other people I talk to. <laughs> if, if we don't have a podcast with some person, I don't talk to anyone. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Me neither, actually. I text. <laughs> I, I text a lot. Yeah, well, I talk maybe like once a month. That's not true. You talk to people, but yeah, but okay, maybe like once a month. Sometimes once in like six weeks. Yeah, I don't talk to anyone. Yeah. So and that's better because I save all my all my ideas all your, for the all podcast, your, all your energies, all my revelations for the podcast. Okay, anyway, so uh, we'll be back soon. Yeah, thanks, thanks for listening to us. Okay.